Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for the entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into the chat, we wanna say thanks for the questions coming from Peter S, Johnny R, Luke A, Jared W and others. We have Daniel Major with us. Daniel is the Chief Executive Officer of Goviex Uranium. Goviex is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under symbol GXU. Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Daniel, so uh, for folks who don't know much about you, tell us about your background, your successes and failures before coming to Goviex. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a long-standing mining engineer. Got my degree at the Campbell School of Mines. Uh, then went out to work at Rio Tinto's Rossing Uranium Mine uh, in what was then Southwest Africa, later to become Namibia. Um, when the uranium price went down to eight dollars a pound, I was part of the team that redesigned it to survive um, at that price and for and to be able to get out and rephase itself. Uh, I then was the Chief Mining Engineer for the world's first open pit platinum mine in the northern Transvaal of South Africa at the time, uh, which is now part of the Amplat stable and Amplat's most uh, profitable mine. Um, I then uh, started my own consultancy company with a friend of mine um, and did that for a while um, before joining uh, what was then the old Johannesburg Consolidated Investment, JCI, uh, doing M&A work for them and projects. Um, I then went to join HSBC, then JP Morgan as an analyst, uh, riding on the platinum sector and then the mining houses in London. Uh, I was rate, we were a rated team, we're actually number one global team, and I was rated individually as well. Um, after doing that for seven years, I decided I needed to get back industry and uh, saw an opportunity to move forward. I, I'd left the mining industry to become an analyst as a consulting engineer and wanted to go up a step, so I moved to work out of Russia um, for Oleg Deripaska and his basic element group, producing about, we produced about 8% of the world's pheromoly um, out of Siberia. And then as part of that role, I was given, um, I was chairman of his timber business, uh, which had pulp and packaging um, properties across Russia. Uh, did that for about four years um, and then went into exploration in South America doing gold and, and manganese, um, and then gold production in uh, Quebec and uh, Peru. So I've kind of had a whole range of different commodities, open pit and underground, been an analyst as well. Um, so, you know, success has come in, in many forms from public listings, starting new mines, coming in under budget, um, you know, individual successes and think we've done well as a, and, and Goviets has been a success to date. I mean, We've gone all the way through the exploration, the planning stages, and the permitting stage, you know, all within a relatively short phase of time. Right. Well, that sounds great and, and quite a, uh, a realm of experience, as you suggested there. And, and now, uh, as we continue here, you uh, are starting to write the, the chapter on uh, your uranium experience. So that's that's good. And, and we've got a number of years uh, coming down the pipeline. Um, so in, in your view, uh, in Africa, uh, we have two uh, two competing uranium nations, Niger and Namibia. Which one, in your view, is better? 
Unbiasedly, of course, <laughs> I would say Niger um, for a number of reasons. One, I think it, it's been producing for a very long time. I mean, since the early 1970s, uh, Riva started their operations. Um, the grades are considerably higher than the grades down in Namibia. Um, the mining code has, has stayed very much stable without any any changes. Um, Namibia has had its own sort of question marks occasionally on that, but seems to have kept to the cause. But I think one of the key drivers is just the infrastructure and the and the presence of water. I mean, the Namibian projects, you know, water is a major issue for Namibia um, and having access to that water. Uh, and it's a cost, whereas in Niger, uh, that doesn't apply. There is plenty of water, surprisingly, in the aquifers and all the infrastructure is there. So I think if you put in the two countries that, you know, they're able to match each other in a whole bunch of areas. But I think the, the key drivers would be certainly the grades uh, but, and that access to water. Uh, as well as a government that, you know, both governments are very pragmatic about what they're after and both are uranium producing nations. Um, you know, I like I like both countries to operate in. Um, you know, I, I think I would just give Niger the head. Right. OK. No, that sounds good. Um, so in Africa, too, you've got uh, what these with these mostly in these two competing countries, you've got a few competing junior Explorer, Devcos, uh, Goviex, Deep Yellow, Global Atomic, Bannerman, uh, Forces, ACAP, and Aura Energy. Tell us first which one of these names you see as real competitors, why you like them, and then tell us why Goviex is superior. Uh, oh, it's always a tough one when you've got to compare yourself to your peers in case any of my other competitors are listening to this call. Um, uh, look, you know, I think our key driver above all of those guys is the fact we have, you know, two projects that are fully permitted. Um, I mean, that's got to be the starting point. I know some of the others have got permits. Forces, for example, have got their permits uh, for their project. I think also coming back to my point, you know, on grade and impact on cost, you know, we're coming in at a cash cost at um, under $25 for for Goviex, whereas if you look at the, the Namibian projects like Forces, I think you're in the mid 30s um, for their cash costs on their current feasibility study. Um, you know, if you look at the others, um, your DPLOs, your your Global Atomics, they're still behind the curve. And I think that the true um, key of this cycle at the moment is those that can actually get into cash flow. Now, Global Atomic have obviously got a very interesting project south of us, good grades. I think uh, their issues are going to be more about how they take that PEA they've got and put into a PFS. It's a complex ore body. Uh, it's vertically stacked. No one's mined like that in, in um, Niger before. Um, they've got some work cut out for them. They've still got to get themselves permitted. It is in Niger, so I wouldn't see the governmental side of that being a problem for them, but they've obviously got to go through those stages putting together their capital budget. But they've got a good grade, so I won't you know, argue with that. Uh, as I said, Forces permitted. They've got a project sitting there. Um, their issue really is going to be at what price can they make that project work and you know, access to water, which I believe they have. Um, at least that part is done. But it's going to be you know, what grade, what uranium price you're going to need. And with the cash cost well into the 30s, obviously it's going to be a lot higher than we're going to need out of Niger. Deep Yellow, I, I, I got to say, Deep Yellow is probably more an early stage explorer. 
Um, you know, they're, they're drilling out the same kind of things you've got sitting down there with Paladin. You know, Paladin, when they shut down, were running, what, $25 cash costs, and they weren't even stripping. So it kind of puts Deep Yellow in a similar place than you've got Forces. Forces are already ahead of them, though, uh, on the curve. So, you know, we all have our, our, our places to sit. I think, you know, I'd, I'd obviously put us above everybody else. Um, but I think that's partly timing um, and partly um, costing. Right, right. And, you know, ACAP and, and ARA, they have their challenges in those two respective countries because of the uh, the fact that neither one of those countries has any uranium uh, framework from the government standpoint. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So it'll be interesting to that's see good. what happens with those folks. And so tell us what, uh, you know, you, you guys, you mentioned some cash costs and so forth, but what, what's the, what's the all in, all in sustaining costs? Uh, for, the for the, the all in life of mine is just under, just over $36, $36.4 a pound. That's our all in cost. That includes all capital uh, and all operating costs um, to produce uh, pounds of uranium for the life of mine. Okay. Okay. Very well. Um, so what? Tell uh, us. And how, interestingly, how, sorry. Interestingly, on that, Zambia is almost identical. <laughs> right. So both Niger and Zambia have almost identical uh, all-in costs. Okay. No. Interesting. And uh, so, so tell us, uh, looking outside of Africa, um, what? Give us, give us a company you might like outside of Africa these days. Uranium. Yeah, I often get asked this one. Uh, I mean, personally. I'm a big Denison fan, and not just because they're shareholders. I mean, if I just look at the project that they've got there, uh, I, you know, I'm impressed by their team. Obviously, we're close to them and what they do. Uh, I think Dave Cates has done a great job running that company and taking over from the guy, uh, from Rod before him. Uh, I think very innovative in the way that they've been handling that PFS. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that that mill doesn't need to be built for them, uh, and they're on the east side of the Athabasca. I found I found pretty cool. Um, you know, even without the ISR approach that they had, they already had a great project um, on that side. So I think of the the, the, the Athabascas, obviously, you know, the three main ones that are sitting up there. I would put Denison above the other two simply because I think they're just that much closer to getting themselves permitted and ready to go. I think they've got a great project and a very innovative team who are looking at it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why I think is probably the biggest challenge. Okay. So, uh, what people in the uranium business do you regard as respectable and a must follow type of figure? Um, I, I depend on what part you're looking at, but I certainly think if you're looking at the market, I mean, you know, you've got to be Scott Melby's always a guy I, I like talking to when I get a chance. And, you know, whenever I meet up with him, at conference, he's a, he's a guy I will always try and find time to sit down and discuss what he's hearing in the market, compare notes. Um, you know, he, he's pragmatic uh, as well about what he's hearing. He's he's pretty level-headed and balanced on it. Um, so I certainly think, you know, and he's accessible as well. So for, you know, your listeners who are at conferences, Scott's usually around at those conferences. And if you want to kind of get the supply side demand side balance that you know market is doing which you, you're not being able to pick up from a trade tech or a uxc scott's a great guy to spend time with um so i certainly you know he's a guy i always find definitely worth uh, a good half hour with okay anybody else um yeah i mean i think within our industry you know most of the ceos are pretty sensible about what they do 
would I put anyone else above? Um, not really. Um, you know, I think it would be unfair of me to kind of put highlight others uh, beyond that. I mean, obviously, I talk to them all. We all get different bits from each other all of the time. Um, you know, it would be unfair of me to judge one against the others. I think, you know, Scott's one guy I can just say, look, he's a neutral out there. Um, he right. has a different position in our role. Yeah, and with his past uh, experience with Uranium One and so forth, uh, he certainly has some yeah. has some you know heavy duty experience there in the U.S. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, so the Section 232 petition in the United States, it's in process, yep. and a decision is expected within maybe six months. Um, tell us uh, what what do you think will be the outcome, and how will it affect Goviex? Yeah, uh, there's a gambling game. Um, yeah, all right. Uh, my, uh, let me just come straight off. My personal view is that this will probably result in tariffs uh, against what I would call, let's describe it as the Soviet states, um, you know, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan, and Russia. Uh, it's a complex one. Uh, you know, I know those guys who are, are associated with those U.S. companies um, have definitely got very strong views on where they think it's going to come out. I think my problem is when I look at the balance of power uh, or, or political positioning, um, it's very hard for me to to see where it will go other than to protect the, the nuclear fleet. Um, you know, there was an excellent presentation by Exelon at the, the, the World Nuclear Association just highlighting how tough it is for the nuclear fleet to balance itself and protect itself against cheap gas in the PGM basin. Yeah, and we all highlight, you know, how limited the impact of uranium prices on nuclear generation. I think that's fair enough. However, when you're, you know, fighting a power energy price battle, everything counts. Um, you know, and the nuclear fleet in the US is given the right support and right protection is very robust and i think politically people are understanding it needs that protection to survive that they need it for jobs they need it for the economy they need it for clean clean energy um the nuclear fleet is a very large employer of people as well uh, so when i kind of look at that balance i'm like all right well, which 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 you prefer to have the nuclear fleet or the nuclear mine the uranium mines i think also when you realize that Canada, you know, exports more to the U.S. than the combined Soviet states in uranium. You know, this whole view that you know the Kazakhs are just dumping material, or the Soviet states are dumping material into the market, kind of falls away slightly. Um, also, you know, the Trump government's very, very clear on you know protecting their position as a nuclear nation. While you know know-how, etc., and some of the things they're trying to do to protect um, transfer of knowledge into places like China, I'm again like, well, you know, again, who are you trying to protect here—the nuclear miner, the uranium miner, or the nuclear fleet? Uh, and I think my my sense is ultimately they will come to a balance, which is we need to protect the reactors more than the jobs coming from the uranium mine. You know, and there's no point in saying you get a um, you know, a commitment to deliver an X percentage to the nuclear fleet if the nuclear fleet size is just getting smaller. Um, that there's no point in doing that. So 
I think personally, you know, and, and Russia already has got limits about what it can import into the U.S. So there are a number of issues here already where, you know, the Soviet countries are already controlled for what they can deliver. Um, so I think, you know, it'll ultimately become with a, a politics game. Um, and I think ultimately something will be done. I, I just personally think it will be a, a tariff to be shown as a sort of flag rather than anything more than that. But, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we can all have how gamble on this one and, and see what comes out. Right, right. And uh, there's some interesting views coming out of it. We we just, uh, just spoke with uh, Walter Coles, Jr. of Virginia Energy uh, just uh, last week, and he had some interesting views that uh, – That'll be interesting for people to hear when that when that comes out, and you know, with with two, you know, with Rick Perry at the Department of Energy and and Trump at the White House, you know, it certainly is a positive environment. Um, and of course, as as we know, uh, Russia is gaining significant ground with nuclear infrastructure deployment across the globe. Uh, yep. You know, whether whether Putin's high fi- high high fiving the the Saudi prince uh, at the, at the uh, G20 <laughs> summit here, uh, you know, it's. It's Russia is catching up big time, and the U.S. has fallen behind on the foreign nuclear infrastructure. So hopefully, with the Trump administration, they can step up their game and and uh, keep competing on the global stage. But it'll be interesting well, to see how uh, yeah. two thirty two comes. Well, that's right, and as you point out, that that's where that balance comes. Which which battle do you want to win? Um, you know, are you competing at the nuclear technology, nuclear generation end, or do you want to just produce more uranium? Um, right. You know, I, and I think there, that there, there is a balance between those two, which the Trump government has got to sit down and figure out um, how does it achieve and what achieves the most. Right. So moving on, uh, your chairman, uh, Govin Friedland, uh, yep. recently moved back to the to uh, North America. So where yep. is he spending most of his time now and what is he doing? Uh, he spends most of his time around New York. Um, and uh, now we've got him over there. We can get him out on the road marketing into the North America rather than having to have him flog around the world. So he used to live in, in Paris. Um, it's much better. He's now uh, in that New York area, and so now we use him as a, a marketing tool. Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, very very well on that. Uh, so uh, on on that subject, he's, he's doing some, some marketing work and, and probably connecting up with some some contacts in the industry and the banking side. So when yep. is the company going to make an announcement regarding financing and will it be after the bankable? And what are the expected proportions of debt, debt uh, equity and offtake? Yeah. Um, I mean, the way, the way I kind of have laid this out all the time is guys, you know, one of the benefits we have as a company is we already have that permit. Um, normally you would kind of, that permit's one of those political things, uh, you know, that's in the way of political risk that when the banks are looking at it, you know, they're, they're going through and trying to figure out what to do and they never know where they got the permit. The difference here is we already know it's there. So what we've, the way we're doing this is effectively running the bankable parallel to the debt and then the offtake agreement discussions as well. The bankable will always get finished first simply because you've got us, the banks have got to have something to sign off on. So, you know, we will be looking, you know, mid to late next year to sign off on that bankable, depending on the, the rate that the uranium price continues to rise. Uh, we're not going to rush to finish it simply because we want something that is as close to the completed article at the point that the banks are ready to sign off it. And they need to have security of price going forward. 
And we obviously want to get as high a price as we can to go into that um, under contract. Um, so, you know, there's no real rush um, to push that through, but we're cognizant we'd like to get it done by the end of next year. That's our target. Um, right. The regard, you know, and, and regarding how it all fits together, at the end of the day, debt, offtake, and equity will all tie up. Um, you know, the way this is going to work is the, the bank's risk committees are going to want to make sure that from a risk perspective, they can understand what the pricing risk is. Hence, the contractual part of the of the pricing. They're obviously going to you, we're going to want to protect the downside risk on the project, presenting it to the bank. So we've obviously got to look at how best we can structure offtake in relation to anything we want to uh, have against the project. That will also then, once you've done that, once the guys know what their bottom side risk is on pricing and they know where the BFS has finished, they will then be able to define the level of lending that they are willing to put to it. Now, the higher the price structure, the more that they'll be willing to lend to it. Part of that on our, and then once they've got that and you've got the debt, then we know what the equity is that's got to be slotted into it. Where we started, and, and, and we always start with the banks, is to say, look, this is where we're trying to look at is the two thirds of the project will be debt, one third will be equity. Are you okay at that initial stance? Their caveated position is yes, we get that. We're not we're not worried because of where you are or anything else. If the numbers add up, we see no reason why two thirds debt, one third equity is not doable. Obviously, we'll only answer that question when we get to the end and we all know what the commercial structure looks like. Um, from our point of view, the, the key focus of that bankable is about optimizing the project. So what I am doing is sitting down with the, the technical team right up front and just saying, okay, guys, we did a pre-feasibility study. Like all pre-feasibility studies, that was to optimize the project over the life of the mine to understand what that project can do. We now have to relook at it and focus it on optimizing it for the debt period because that's the bit you're, you're really looking at. So we originally designed the plant, for example, to be positioned on top of the underground mine, which is about 20 k's north of the open pit simply because that's where the biggest volume of ore was going to come from. So it's illogical to put it where the smallest amount was going to come from. But the initial ore comes from the open pit. So you, that saves a lot of upfront money on transportation. The reason we can do that is that obviously once we get into production, there's a high likelihood of being able to drill into the further south of ourselves into that Matawala 4 license and pick up more open pit. Now, one of the benefits is, is once you've mined the open pit out, the way the ore body structure sits, you could actually portal straight out of the bottom of the open pit into a mine and save all the underground portal costs. You can't do that in the PFS because you have to keep the flow of volume and move to the underground. The reality right. is that once you've got the mine operating, you can now start examining these issues better. So as long as, we, and you've got seven to eight years to think about it, we're looking at power supply. We were originally assuming we'd take power from the national grid from a coal-fired power station. You know, we've had indications that we can get the power cost down from, say, 21 cents to below 15 cents using a solar hybrid plant. Uh, we've had that from a number of people. We're, we have not included um, filtration membrane separation into the uh, into the PFS. It can now go onto the DFS. So we're looking at what we can do, bring the capital down, bring the operating costs down. That makes the structuring easier for the banks, working with the offtake. So 
it, you know, all these things fit together. So, you know, it's, it's, we're not going to suddenly appear in the market and say, hey, we've signed these contracts for offtake. And then, you know, months later, sign off the debt. We'll be doing everything together. Excellent. Excellent. So offtake will certainly be part of this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for a number of reasons, you know, the key, you know, from a debt financing point of view, the, you know, anything you can do to reduce the downside risk for the banks right. allows them to, to improve their their credit position with you from a, a lending perspective. Uh, you know, and, and the other thing from my point of view is, uh, you know, Maduela is a fantastic cornerstone project for GoVX long term. You know, it starts as 21 years, you know, with the amount of expiration upside, it probably go for 50 years. So, you know, I'm more focused on making sure that thing gets up and pays its debt back than anything else. Because once it's up and running with a sort of $25 cash cost, it'll sit there happily ticking along and be the cornerstone of our company long, long term. Because, you know, we, we could, if, you know, if the uranium price goes super exciting, then we can always start up Namib, um, Zambia. Um, instead, we, you know, that's one of the benefits we have is we don't have to put all our eggs into one basket. We can just, you know, play the second card we've got, which is Zambia. Right. So regarding supply contracting and your true all-in sustaining cost, what is the lowest price at which you will start to obligate uh, GoVX supply? <laughs> Obviously, the final answer that is going to be come out of what we get from the feasibility study. Um, on that, I'm targeting something well under $50, where you're sitting with the PFS to get a sort of 20% IRR um, and adjusting for a couple of easy things like the power plant, then I'm looking for something like 50 bucks now would get us away. But, you know, my target is to get it even lower than that. And what okay. we'll be looking for, Andrew, not, is not a fixed price. We're going to be looking for a collared contract. Um, so we're looking for something that's got a floor but we'll have to have a ceiling with it as well. So we want some of the price upside, but we obviously have to give some of that upside away to protect the downside. Yes, absolutely. And I'm and obviously you're leaving plenty of produ production uh, capacity to 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 get on some of those those higher contracts, which will will obviously come. Yep. It's just a matter of when. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that's good. Um, you know, obviously, you guys, you guys, you know, want to see want to see uh, some of that capacity sitting around for the speculative, uh, you know, contract sixty, seventy, eighty plus. So that would be uh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes sense. You guys have to get some of that cash flow going, and you have to make some early deals uh, to get that off the ground. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, again, at the end of the day, you're running a company here with, you know, a sustainable company. Um, and that's really what you're focused on doing is getting something that becomes financially strong long term. Um, right. And that's really and, you know, and this is our first project in GoVX. We've got to make sure it, it's robust in everything that it does. Right. So on that on that same kind of uh, subject, who's handling negotiations regarding long term contracting? Um, we're working through a, a, a number of players. We obviously announced Hulahan Loki because the guy who was at Hulahan Loki um, was part of the old SOCGEN team, uh, which were the Medea guys, were the guys that did all of the the debt structuring for all the projects in Africa last cycle. Um, and we've got a couple of other smaller ba other banks that are working with us. We're just restarting that process. I have to say we did slow down. Um, there was no point in trying to negotiate contracts at twenty two dollar uranium. Um, you know, you were just wasting your time in conversation, being out there and talking to people. 
Um, so now that uranium price is kind of moving back up, we're just restarting that process. Right. Okay. So, so on another subject, walk us through the supply chain from the perspective of a barrel of cake. So, ex- example, Daniel, you jump, you jump in a barrel at uh, the project in, in Niger, <laughs> and the barrel is sitting at your facility. What happens until it reaches the possession of your client? So, give us the supply chain. Uh, it's basically sh- transshipment. Uh, the the the, um, the buyer will tell us where they want it shipping to. Um, it is then shipped out of Niger by road. It goes all the way down into Benin, where it goes onto rail. Um, and all of that transshipment, it will go the same way that uh, Arriva does. It goes, they send theirs out um, once a month um, under an escort. Um, goes by rail then down to Cotonou. Cotonou then goes onto a boat and then is shipped off to wherever it needs to go. Um, so our end users will define where they want that material, which, you know, storage area converter, they want it being shipping to, and that's where it will get sent. Okay, so you guys already have those relationships set up. The, uh, for, for example, the shipping line, and not a, not a lot of folks uh, ship this uh, cargo, so you guys already have all that kind of... Well, we've already started, but have we have we contracted it out to anybody? No. Um, you know, we know where how Arriva does it, and there's a number of players that already do that for them. And, and that's right. exactly the point you make. There aren't that many players out there. Um, and, and it's all highly regulated anyway. Yes. Okay. Well, excellent. I appreciate that, that perspective on that. Uh, so, so 2019 is upon us. Uh, do you still believe if prices move soon that you can be fully commissioned and online by 2021 to take advantage of those prices? Um, we have a, we've got penciled in a two year construction period. So, if we can get finished by the end of 2019, by the end of 2021, we should be into product, into production. So banking feasibility within a year is doable, but it, it will depend on what that uranium price is doing. If it sits stuck where it is, um, then obviously that, we don't think that will happen. We, we, we certainly believe that the actions of Cameco particularly um, and the amount of material they've got to buy still for next year's contract requirements we'll see this price continue to move up to the point that we're going to be able to secure those contracts uh, at a level that we think is going to be doable for the project. So I, I think it's doable. What's left on the feasibility study um, is, is easy enough. I mean, the key areas left still is just a final pilot plant run um, just to make sure that you know the technology we've put to play and the process plant works like we think it's going to work and like, like the test work we've done today on the individual components has shown, but we you know, part of the pilot plant is just putting it all into a straight line to prove that it does work and that we can produce a yellow cake at spec that as required by the industry. Um, the banks have got to do their feasibility studies. Um, they have to do all their due diligence on the environmental, et cetera. That's a key component of what they have to do. So, you know, I think the 12 months we've kind of said, you know, is, are outside to do is doable for the, for production start, um, two years definitely, and a part of what we've been doing on looking at the project is a large component of everything in that process plant is actually modular and can actually be pre-delivered to site. Um, so that should be able to we should be able to accelerate the um, the construction phase if that is the case. Rather rather than trying to build everything from scratch on site, which is quite the old way, um, pretty well everything can now be delivered pre-built to site. Right, right, absolutely. No, that that sounds uh, 
sounds good. So, um, you know, and with with that too, uh, <clears throat> with the, the 232 getting cleaned up, uh, hopefully in, in 2019, of course, and, and uh, Cameco buying on the market, and then of course long-term contracts rolling out, uh, kind of coming to an end in, in, in 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, this is this is lining up to be quite interesting. So uh, on another subject, we had a number of inquiries uh, regarding the sale of shares uh, by uh, Govin. Um, can you share with us who took these shares and the circumstances behind the deal? Uh, Govin had, for personal reasons, had to sell shares. Um, that was a function on, on, on his own personal life that caused that, and it was partly well, the majority because he had to move jurisdictions. Um, they were taken by a long-term investor. The guy is already a shareholder in the company. Um, he took the whole lot. Um, the price has not been disclosed. Uh, he's still a long-term holder, the guy is, um, and intends to be so. Um, so, you know, I think that's as much as I can really disclose. Uh, it was just a, a function of timing. Um, Govin needed the funds. Uh, he had nothing else that was liquid enough uh, to be able to provide them. And, and unfortunately, after 10 years of holding those shares, um, he was unfortunately had to, to sell those ones. He still holds a lot of shares in Goviex and continues to be very supportive and, and very constructive within the company. Um, so, you know, I don't think people should take it as a negative. You know, I, it, it, it was a function of where he was. Right, right. And it's a little difficult now to watch. You know, the, the whoever picked him up obviously doesn't have a 10% share and and uh, no. so it's a little bit difficult to see the filings uh, because they're now both, uh, you know, underneath that uh, 10% threshold. Well, I know I appreciate the, the clarification on that. Um, yes, yeah. So and just as an aside, Andrew, I mean, it, 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 it actually always makes me smile when people always say, you know, how many, you know, what insiders sell have. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem insiders are ever allowed to sell them. Right. <laughs> you must own them, but you can never sell them. <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. I, I, I completely understand. Um, so, uh, tell us about the connection with Denison. Um, does Goviex and Den does the Goviex Denison relationship highlight the cooperation of the Friedland and Lundin families? And is there a real desire to take a market share of this uranium mining business? Um, I, I, I think really, the, the, at the moment, the relationship is very much at a, a localized level between the two parties between Denison and, and Goviex rather than a, than a family level. I, I, I wouldn't at this stage be reading anything more into it than that. Um, you know, part, one of the main reasons for the deal was really both companies wanted to focus on what they were doing. Um, Denison wanted to focus on Canada. They, were, they had a, a portfolio that had assets in that just didn't make sense for them to be holding. Um, they d just could not find the time uh, or the energy to focus on the African projects. Um, and they obviously had the Canadian projects. In our case, it really suited the style of a strategy that we had to take those assets. And, and you know, for both, it, it made sense. So I think, you know, the key reasoning behind the deal was strategic for both parties to get, you know, the best out of it. We've now got a pipeline of projects. Two of them are fully permitted ready to go, we're comfortable in the jurisdiction. Um, they're now able to focus on Wheeler River and focus on Canada. So, um, you know, where it takes um, the Friedlands and the Lundins empires 
we'll wait and see as we as we move forward. But you know, I think ultimately this was all about the right strategy for both companies. Right. Okay. I appreciate the clarification on that one. Um, so, uh, where are we headed in 2019? And uh, with with that, Daniel, as as a final wrap up here. So, where are we headed? Where do you see the market going in 2019? And uh, what what do you have to say to prospective uh, GoVX shareholders who are considering the company at this point? Um, I. I Look, when we started last year, I'm going to pat myself on the back for this one, but it's probably the only time we're right. But at the end, beginning of last year, I said, look, nothing will happen in the first half. It'll all happen in the second half of the year. And it was all down to Cameco needing to work through their inventories uh, before and then commit to the, the permanent shutdown of, of um, MacArthur River. And that's pretty well what happened last this year is that you know until Cameco had made that big decision to shut down on a permanent basis MacArthur River, we weren't really going to see this drive up. And ever since that point, we've seen this through. And I think you know Cameco have made it very clear that they need to see contract prices back up at the at least the you know fifty dollar level before they're going to be interested in restarting MacArthur River. Um, you know, they've taken a lot of pain out there, shutting down Rabbit Lake, Crown Butte, then MacArthur River. Um, and there is, and they've made it very clear that restarting um, certainly MacArthur River, they do not want to do it just to suddenly have a, an unstable market again in front of them. It's, it needs to be structurally stronger. Now that the Kazakhs are saying very similar things, I think they can have a degree of comfort that when they get to the end of this process, that's what they'll get. So I think, you know, you can't underestimate the impact of, of Cameco's actions over the next year. I think you've got very clear outline from Kazatomprom that at least for the next year, they're going to maintain their production at the current level. And obviously, based on where prices are at the end of next year, they will then re-look at themselves and decide what to do next. Um, MacArthur River will stay off at least until contracts are up at the 50 level, in which case they will obviously at that point more than likely restart to fulfill those contracts because at that point it will be no reason why they would not because it would actually economically more sensible for them to dig it up themselves and sell it than continue to buy in the market. So I, I think that's going to be the key drivers. Do I see a lot of other produ production coming on stream? No, not really. You know, we're hearing that, you know, continually that HUSAB is underperforming. Um, probably going to only get you know five million pounds out of it this year. Probably seven next year. I'm, I'm hearing that that probably is really its its true number, and it will stay at that level. Um, you know, I think we'll be seeing soon some announcement out of uh, Arano on certainly on the Comanac mine of what its long term position is. Uh, expect that to gradually fade away uh, as well. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think this year, going into 2019, is going to be, again, slow and steady. Um, Cameco will continue to extract inventory uh, where they can see it and and buy it. Um, I think the, the, the real trigger is as soon as that long-term price moves and how quickly it starts to change. So that's the one I'm going to start watching a lot more. Um, but Spot is obviously the lead. And once that Spot goes through term contracts, it's going to get very exciting out there. Right, and and with Kazataprom with their IPO recently in London, 
you know, they, the, the interests are starting to align together. So as a public company now, their interests are going to start becoming more aligned with, with what we'd like to see. So I think that's also a positive positive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I've seen people make comments about, you know, the Kazakhs can just ramp up. I mean, look, if, if you're the guy out there and you've got it, I mean, you can't have this uranium market without Kazakhstan and Kamako operating in it. They, they're the, you know, they're the gorillas in the room. You need both of them. Um, to balance the market. And if you're Kazakhstan and you've got Cameco out there who actively is trying to get contracts up to a point, why would you do anything that puts that in any position than positive? Um, you know, because they will benefit from Cameco's work and Cameco benefits from them standing out of the market. So, you know, uh, that's very constructive for everybody in our industry that those two continue to, to operate in the way that they're operating um, and for themselves. Um, and they both they both win out of that. So I, I you know I think it's going to be very interesting to see that go through. And that's another reason why, in our own case, I am fixated at the moment on on cost reduction on our project because I think that's really what we've got to be got to, we've got to take that first mover advantage that our permits provide us, um, and and be there as quickly as we can while that price is going up. Right. Well, Daniel, we appreciate you coming on, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot.